Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. Both I and our guests today are recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. Our guest today, which I'm very excited to have on the show, is Dr. Scott Grunland, who is the Roger and Sherry Teigen Presidential Professor at the University of Oklahoma in Psychology. Dr. Grunland's con Dr. Grunland conducts research on human memory, and his current focus is eyewitness identification, including the transformative role of decision confidence, which we'll talk about today. And he's published a number of articles on psychology and memory including the recent 2018 article, The New Science of Eyewitness Memory. Thank you for being in conversation today, Dr. Grunland. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you. So I want to I start this conversation off sort of looking big picture at eyewitness testimony. What is eyewitness testimony used for, and why is it that we rely on it so heavily in the criminal legal system? So eyewitness evidence Eyewitness identification is evidence in criminal trials. There are a number of crimes where that's the only evidence that is available. Many, most crimes don't have DNA to test. You know, there may not have been anything left at the scene, you know, nothing to test for fingerprints, anything like that, like a, just a quick you know, robbery on the street. You know, there's not much to go on other than an eyewitness uh, report. So that, you know, that's why it's sometimes used because there's nothing else, nothing else to go on. So then if there's nothing else to go on, I mean, the next question, if this is used so heavily, is it accurate? Is this the most accurate evidence we can use? Uh, it is not the most accurate evidence we can use. Um, it, I mean, one of the things I think we can talk about today is the circumstances that can make it more accurate. Um, or less accurate. There is no way to make it perfect. Memory doesn't work that way. You know, I like to think about eyewitness evidence um, the way you might think of risk factors for your health. You know, not everyone that smokes develops lung cancer, but it certainly is predictive of developing lung cancer or, you know, worse health outcomes. Um, you know, some people that exercise you know, I mean, usually that's good for your health, although for some people it can be uh, dangerous, uh, overexertion. So there's all sorts of factors that impact our memory, and there's no way to determine whether someone's, you know, absolutely correct or not. Um, but there certainly are a number of factors that go along with more accurate identifications and a set of factors that tend to predict uh, less accurate identifications. And uh, so that's, I think that's how you have to kind of think about it. That definitely makes sense. Um, and that's a good way to frame it. So what are, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit later probably about some of the conditions of memory in general, but in terms of eyewitness identification, eyewitness memory, what are the conditions that make it more accurate or make it less accurate? Uh, some of the things that make it more accurate are, are sort of common sense uh, factors. Um, you need to get a decent look at the person you're trying to identify. 
Oh, I should mention, too, that what I'm talking about is stranger identification. Uh, identifying someone you know is, is a different sort of issue um, and not really a, so much a memory uh, issue. But much of the research, much of the concern about eyewitness identification, in fact, the vast majority of the concern and research is focused on identification of strangers. So the, the factors that, you know, having, you know, having a good uh, look at, uh, at someone um, under, you know, proper lighting conditions, you know, that's going to tend to be related to a, a greater likelihood of getting it correct, you know, a longer view, a closer view. Uh, these are all sort of sensible things. Uh, on the other hand, you know, sometimes you, you can demonstrate uh, in the lab or in, you know, real cases, someone that got a good long look at someone in daylight and, and uh, you know, misidentifies them. So that's what I mean by saying just because, you know, you got a good long view close up doesn't guarantee that your identification is going to be accurate, it's, but it's more likely to be than someone that got a, you know, a short view at an angle at a very, you know, at, at night uh, from a great distance. Sure. And are those are those factors taken into consideration when like judging whether a witness's eyewitness identification is accurate or more accurate or depended on more heavily? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, they're supposed to be, but too often they're ignored. I mean, judges are supposed to, you know, if the defense objects to the eyewitness um, evidence, perhaps trying to claim that the procedure was suggestive or the identification was suggestive, you know, based on factors like, well, you know, they, it was nighttime, you were a long ways away, right? How could you have made an identification? Um, but seems that all too often the judge you know, allows the evidence, no matter how suggestive it might be. Jurors tend to weigh the evidence um, they're not good at distinguishing between, you know, factors that would lead you to believe an evident, uh, identification is accurate or inaccurate. You know, what, what they see is an eyewitness in court um, reporting with high confidence that, you know, the man at the defense table is the one that, you know, robbed them. Even though, so, so that sort of trumps all the other uh, factors. You know, a, a friend of mine described it as, you know, I, I realize, you know, let me exaggerate for a moment, but, you know, I realize when you, when you were robbed, it was, you know, where you were 200 yards away, it was pitch black, uh, you had your sunglasses on, you know, you weren't even, but somehow, right, you overcame all those factors and still made a positive identification. So the jurors, rather than saying, well, geez, there's no possible way <laughs> that this could be accurate. The jurors instead too often interpret that as, wow, this person must have an amazing memory to be able to do that, when in fact, it's all sorts of other factors that we can get into, like feedback and multiple testing, that makes an eyewitness more confident than they should be uh, over time. Yeah, that's so interesting that the judge and the jury are giving the benefit of the doubt to those. Giving the benefit of the doubt. And, and you know, I don't know that that's a bad idea, right? This poor person who's, who's on the witness stand, they're not lying. Right? Their memory has begun to trick them. They were wronged. Right? They got robbed or something worse happened to them. So they are a very sympathetic figure who is not lying. 
And um, so that's difficult for a jury or a judge or a prosecutor to overlook because, in fact, the witness is, is telling the truth. It's just that their memory too often can, can, uh, can trick them. That's so interesting the way you phrase it as their memory can trick them, which which is so important. I mean, from my lived experience, I know that I can misremember things. So I want to follow up with sort of two related but distinct questions. First, what are the factors that influence a person's memory? How does how does a memory trick a person? And then the second is what are the factors that influences a person's confidence in their memory? Um so the the factors that um, trick our memory. I mean, one of the one of the factors or one of the things that happen when we trick our memory is that confidence can also be increased. So um, these factors are are related. Um, but you know, when whenever we retrieve a memory, not an eyewitness memory, but any memory, uh, that memory becomes malleable again because we constantly want to update our memories, which is which is a good thing. Right? We want our memories to be currently accurate. Um, so if the situation, if the environment, if the circumstances have changed, we are updating our memories because we want our memories to be accurate. And if the circumstances, if the environment, if, if, if something related to that memory has changed, uh, we want to modify our memory to make it you know, accurate given the, the new circumstances. And so um, this is going to naturally happen. Um, it's going to happen even more so in an eyewitness uh, situation because you've got other uh, actors involved that um, may be making suggestions to you and uh, helping you, let me put help in air quotes, um, you know, helping you trying to remember things that maybe you're not able to by making suggestions, which naturally get... Um, you know, sort of subsumed into into your memory, and it quickly becomes nearly impossible to distinguish between what actually happened from what you might have inferred, what someone might have suggested to you. Uh, it all gets kind of mixed up into the experience you know, of the original event. A related factor is that you know we have a limited amount of you know mental capacity. We can't encode everything. So, uh, you know, our attention is limited. We encode what we are paying attention to. And if there's information that's not encoded, we fill it in. And normally we fill that in pretty accurately, but sometimes, you know, we add information that's not uh, accurate in service of, you know, solving a problem or, um, you know, making a decision. And again, if we have other actors involved, making suggestions, inviting us to make inferences, then it's very easy for that to get mixed up with the original event. Right? So maybe, you know, for, for example, so let's say we don't get a very good look at the guy. Um, we've got kind of a generic description of this uh, young male that, uh, that robbed us. And the police come and they say, well, you know, we don't, you know, didn't give us much of a description. You know, can't you tell us anything more about maybe his clothing or something? And they mentioned, you know, the police mentioned to you, you know, there's a lot of gang activity in this area. So we think it might be gang related. Well, now, you know, you might 
have some ideas. In fact, you probably do have some ideas about the kind of clothing gang members wear, or um, you know, maybe you've seen gang members in, in movies or something like that. And um, um, so you can um, incorporate that information into your um, memory, and um, you know, start to fill in in the in the with the goal of trying to help the police. Uh, give them some more information, but the question is, is that something you remember that you experienced, or is it something that you've now added based on your prior knowledge of what you think gang members, you know, typically wear? And once you start to make a suggestion about, well, you know, maybe the guy had on, maybe he had, uh, you know, a piercing and, and, and a face tattoo, because you think that people with, you know, in, in gangs, of piercings and face, face tattoos. Well, you know, when it's, you mentioned it the first time, you, you think, you know, maybe that guy has that. But once you tell three, four, five more detectives the same sort of story, well, by the fifth time, yeah, I'm, you know, I get the guy had piercings and a face tattoo, and now you, you've even elaborated the story a little bit more. And um, you become very confident in um, that story that you keep retelling. That's so interesting. That's from one of these seemingly benign um, suggestions that you can extrapolate and start to really believe in what you may or may not have seen. That's absolutely right. And, you know, again, if we're if we experience the world in an accurate way, this is a good principle for our memory to have, you know, to be updating with more accurate, more recent information. But when that information is coming from an external source, um, or if we're being kind of pushed to, you know, try to remember more than we're sort of comfortable doing, then that can start to become part of the memory uh, too. Um, and that one more factor I'll, I'll mention that relates more directly to confidence is feedback. And so, you know, once, if you do manage to make an identification, um, uh, this is this is the the part that I want to return to later about how we treat confidence differently now. But in the past, um, when um, when someone might pick someone out of a lineup, they the police might give you some feedback and say, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's the guy. That's who we thought it was." Um, well, that's going to start to inflate your confidence. You might have picked that one because you thought that's the guy or it kind of looks like the guy. Um, but boy, once the, the police confirm that choice, your confidence is going to start to increase. And uh, two or three more tellings of the story. And by the time you get in court, you're going to remember it as being 100% sure that that was the guy right from the start. And not because you're lying, but because that's just <laughs> all these other factors have worked on your you know, normal functioning memory to inflate the story, the detail, and the confidence. That makes so much sense. Um, and it's interesting because within the criminal legal system, especially there are so many of these different feedback loops or suggestions that there are these opportunities that are ripe for misremembering or, or inflated confidence. So within that system, you've written about this, what constitutes a fair test versus like an unfair or a biased test? There's still some debate about the best way to construct a lineup 
that's fair. But in general, what you're trying to do is um, select what we call fillers, right? People that are known to be innocent of the crime. Uh, you want to select fillers that resemble the suspect. Um, the debate is whether they should resemble the suspect in the way they look or resemble the suspect by description. The general idea is that, you know, you, you want the people to share general character. All the people in the lineup should share general characteristics, right? Approximately the, the same race, um, approximately the same age. Um, uh, you know, if the, if the robber had facial hair, then the, then, the, then the filler should have facial hair. You don't want the suspect to unduly stand out. You want the decision to be based on the eyewitness's memory for the person and not the fact that, well, I remember he had facial hair. Here's six people, only one of which has facial hair. I guess that's him. And so, um, you know, because the issue here is the police have a suspect, but they don't know if that suspect is innocent or guilty, mm -hmm. right? That's why they're doing the lineup, right? If they knew that the guy was guilty, Right, they, because they caught him in the act or they, you know, something else, they might not do the lineup. But, you know, they're not certain. They have a suspect, right? They think this is the guy. They may think that, you know, very strongly this is the guy. Um, but they're still looking for confirmation. And, you know, in a fair lineup, uh, which in the U.S. is uh, six people, other countries do, do uh, more, but uh, here six is standard. And um, you'd want all those fillers to be sort of reasonable choices, right? Not clones, right? Because someone with a decent memory should be able to pick the person out. So there's some debate, too, still in the literature about, well, how similar is similar, how fair is fair. Um, but you certainly don't want one face, one photo to um, kind of stand out from the others. That makes sense. And and so to follow up on that, there have been a number of try attempts of reforms at lineups or these tests, and you've written about some attempted reforms in uh, the late 90s. Um, how has this system of eyewitness identification or trying to make it as fair and unbiased as possible, how has that progressed and has it been effective? So um, the reforms that uh, were first proposed in the late 90s um, when it became, you know, that was right after the, or a few years after the DNA exonerations began. You know, people for a long time have suspected that eyewitness identification was not very reliable. And Elizabeth Loftus in the 70s um, was already uh, testifying in cases and conducting research that was suggesting that that you couldn't always trust these the eyewitness, um, but it was especially in the late '80s and early '90s when DNA testing was developed that um, we began as a society to definitively prove that there were people in prison, some on death row that were innocent of the crimes that they were convicted of. And eyewitness evidence, misidentifications, was often 
um, the primary evidence used uh, to convict these individuals. Um, so these uh, these reforms that were that arose in reaction to the DNA exonerations that you know we need to protect innocent people from being put in prison. Um, and these reforms did that. Um, the problem was that they they claimed that they were making eyewitnesses more accurate, but what in fact they were doing, and this is what uh, the paper you alluded to that I that I wrote in 2015 or something like that, and it wasn't it wasn't just me that was finding these results, but um, th- these reforms, what they were doing was not making eyewitnesses more accurate. They were making ac- uh, eyewitnesses more conservative, more cautious. And so, yes, indeed, the reforms were making uh, eyewitnesses choose innocent suspects less often. Well, that's great. That's what we want. But unfortunately, and this is the part that wasn't apparent initially, it was also making eyewitnesses uh, choose guilty suspects less often. And of course, that's not good. Uh, We want procedures that will make eyewitnesses more accurate, um, uh, more sensitive, and pick guilty people when they're there and not pick innocent people uh, when they're there. And instead, these reforms were just making people more conservative. So these reforms, it seems, instead of sort of affecting the accuracy, they've been been more effective in changing people's confidence. That's right. So what, and we'll, we'll get to the DNA exonerations, but what has changed in our thinking about confidence in the last 20, 30 years? It turned out that the field was, the field of, of psychology, the field of eyewitness researchers, um, was measuring the relationship between confidence and accuracy uh, using a measure that was really masking the extent of the relationship. And so it, it, once people began to sort of unpack that measure and look at um, confidence and accuracy in a different way, uh, it became apparent that under certain circumstances, and we'll have to return to what those circumstances are, but under certain circumstances, an eyewitness's confidence is a pretty good indication of their accuracy. And this was a new way to describe this relationship, which for the prior 20 years, people had said, well, Jesus, just really not much here. Uh, you really, you know, there's nothing much to be gained by dealing with confidence. But once we unpacked that measure and looked at it a different way, um, it became apparent, oh no, on the contrary, when an eyewitness says they're not very sure, there's a good chance that this guy didn't do it. And when the eyewitness says, I'm very sure this is the guy, there's a good chance that that guy committed the crime. Now, in neither case would we want to rely only on the low-confident or high-confident eyewitness, but it suggests that if we throw confidence into this mix, that we can get more sensitive, we can get more accurate eyewitness evidence from, uh, from the system than we thought was possible. Sure, sure. That makes sense. Um, 
And so this new thinking and these reforms were, I guess, in response to this study, these, these DNA exonerations that really started in the 90s. And there was a study done in which DNA, um, hard physical evidence, exonerated 161 people. And in those cases, eyewitnesses, our eyewitness evidence had played a key role in the conviction. That's right. Can you talk more about this study and, and what the major takeaways are for using eyewitness testimony, not using it, or using DNA? So, yeah. So, as you mentioned, these, these were um, a subset of the cases uh, from the Innocence Project. Um, so, the Innocence Project, you know, exonerates people that are convicted of crimes they didn't con- uh, commit using DNA evidence. And um, a law professor, um, uh, Brad Garrett, Brandon Garrett, excuse me, took 161 of these cases. There's many more, but these were 161, as you said, that where eyewitness played a important role. And uh, we we know, you know, these are all misidentifications because these people were convicted and subsequently shown to be innocent based on subsequent DNA testing. What Garrett found gets to the circumstances under which confidence can be useful or not useful to the criminal justice system. Too often, what jurors hear is only the confidence that the eyewitness feels when they get to court. And as we talked earlier, a lot has happened uh, over that time. Uh, the eyewitness got feedback. The eyewitness can, and the, you know, told the story multiple times. The eyewitness thought more and more about the about what happened. And um, so by the time an eyewitness gets in court, they're almost invariably 100% certain that they made the right, they they are making the right decision here, which you can understand why jurors find that so believable. And the judge would find that so believable. Um, But Garrett found evidence um, of what these eyewitnesses remembered saying initially when they made their identification. Now, unfortunately, too often, there's no documentation to what they said. So this is a memory for what they think they said before. Um, But what they remembered in a subset of these 161 cases was that they weren't very confident to start with. Or uh, sometimes there is evidence that they actually picked a filler in the lineup initially or rejected the lineup initially. But this is one of the things the police have to stop doing. The police will test more than once. So they would show that same lineup again to a a witness after maybe they chose the filler, you know, one of the innocent people, or after they rejected the lineup because the police, you know, three weeks later still think this is the guy that did it. And so let's do another test of memory. And they give that you know, same uh, test, uh, another lineup test, excuse me, to the witness, but they'll replace the fillers with five new people, but they'll keep their suspect, of course, because that's the guy they think they did it. Well, now the problem is that there is somebody in the lineup that looks familiar. It's the guy that you saw in the lineup before that you said didn't commit the crime. Um, But now you can imagine that Maybe you might start to think that that is, that is the guy because, well, you know, he looks familiar now. And, and it's hard to keep track of why someone looks familiar. Uh, just not something our memory keeps track of very well. And so 
um, this face might get chosen, you know, a second time. And then imagine a little feedback sprinkled in with the police say, yeah, yeah, that's the guy we thought it was all along. Well, now what's going to happen to your confidence, right? You're initially not very sure, or maybe even, you know, said it wasn't him. But now you've made a choice and now you've got some feedback. And now we get to court and you're highly confident. So to, to, to put a little finer point on that, what Garrett found was some evidence that the initial confidence of these eyewitnesses in these DNA exoneration cases uh, was often uh, low confidence, you know, a signal that these witnesses indicated to the police, hey, you know, I might not be right here. <laughs> um, and, and it turns out, you know, that was the correct instinct, right? They weren't right. These people were innocent. And so that coupled with a lot of uh, research, uh, or it really it, it, the research kind of already existed, and then this just sort of drove the point home, uh, Garrett's results. Um, the circumstances under which confidence is predictive of accuracy is when you focus on the initial confidence, uh, a first fair test for the eyewitness. Um, not a test that follows them seeing the person in the newspaper and then doing a lineup. Not a test that follows seeing the person in social media and then doing a lineup. Not a test that follows a first lineup test and then a second lineup test, right? You get one good chance to test someone's memory. And after that, you know, the memory starts to change. We all have an ability to kind of interrogate our memory uh, on an everyday level. Right? We, we see people on campus when we walk around. We see people at the store and we have to make a quick decision. Is that somebody I know or not? And, um, you know, do I know, am I confident enough that I'm going to, you know, hey, Alex, how's it going? Uh, or if I'm not so sure, I say, hey, guy, how you doing? Because we, we do this and, and we adjust. And, and so and we're not perfect at it, but, but we have some ability to do it. And, uh, and that's the ability that we're talking about here. People can, um, in a first fair test of their memory, can do a reasonable job, not a perfect job, can do a reasonable job of assessing the likelihood that they're correct by reporting their confidence. And when they say they're highly sure, the research shows um, that they um, tend to be accurate at very high rates. Again, not perfect, but very high rates. And when they say they're not sure, uh, if they report, eh, that might be the guy, but I'm not very confident, well, the chances are that that guy's not the guilty suspect, it's an innocent suspect. And so, in fact, we really do want the police to start to pay attention to confidence, but it has to be the right confidence, right? No one should be hearing how confident the witness is in court. Unless the witness says, here's how confident I was six months ago when I made the ID, right? That's what we need to know because that's when their memory is most likely to be uh, accurate and confidence is most likely to be uh, predictive of accuracy. That makes sense. It, it seems like there's the major issue here is that this process, that all these factors along the process can influence one's memory and one's confidence. Um, and that first initial reading is not rendered obsolete, but it's changed over time and it's reimagined or, or your memory is more malleable. That, that's exactly right. It has updated, it has changed. Confidence has inflated by various factors. And the best test we have is that first test.
Um, and it's so important. So the reform now that's recommended, there's some other ancillary reforms, but the, the big thing that people are trying to push right now is, is to collect, right? That only test once, make it a fair test and immediately have the witness report their confidence mm. without any sort of feedback uh, coming from the police uh, to influence um, that judgment. Um, you know, and there's are some other things that can be done that can help make that confidence a little bit more pristine, as people like to call it in the literature, uh, like ha- doing a double blind lineup. So having the person who's, who is administering the lineup not know who the suspect is and informing the eyewitness say, hey, I don't know who the suspect is, so don't look at me for any clues here. I'm just administering the lineup. And so, right, there's no way that that administrator can give any feedback to the eyewitness other than to say, hey, thank you for helping us today, because they don't know if you picked the suspect or not. Um, And that's what we need to do, right? Need to have you make, to interrogate your memory at that point when it says as accurate as it's going to be and um, judge how likely you are to be confident. And that is useful information, though, again, it's not it's not perfect. Sure, sure. That makes sense. And that's a good note to sort of end on with the things that can be done to produce more accurate readings that are that reflect confidence. Um, but I do want to close with the with the question I tend to ask um, everyone who who sits in your chair. Um, what gives you hope today? You know, increasingly, the police are adopting this new reform. I think increasingly, it's it's becoming clear that everyone is trying to do the right thing. I mean, that you see some cooperation. The police want to, you know, they want to do it right. Um, they want to listen to researchers. The researchers want to, you know, acknowledge the difficult job that the police have. This is a pretty easy reform, uh, and you know, and there's a lot of um, or at least there's a, there's a number of jurisdictions around the country that are already that were already doing something like this. So this is not a huge uh, change. Uh, so I think what gives me hope is that people seem to be people in the legal system, the criminal justice system. I think seem to be receptive to this idea. I, I think they kind of believe this. I mean, it makes sense. It's, it makes intuitive sense that someone that's confident is more likely to be correct. And and in fact. That's true. <laughs> and and I think there is, you know, some caution that has to surround this. Police have to be careful about how they do this, right? They have to keep their witnesses off of social media, uh, keep witnesses from talking to one another, right? Try to preserve that memory and then, you know, make one good test of memory, right? Because if you're going to run through multiple tests, Right, that's when memories, you know, the, the more you test it, it's just going to start to become modified and it's not going to be as trustworthy. Uh, I, I've, I recently helped on a, a television episode looking at an old case in, uh, in Oklahoma, a man that's, that's still in prison from a crime in 1975. And um, in that particular case, they did, I, I believe, um, seven lineups. You know, that's just not right. That's a way to get the witness to pick someone, not a way to find the truth. And it's unfortunate, you know, if they don't have the right guy to start with, I mean, they may not get another chance to get a good test of memory. I mean, that's just kind of the way it goes. But 
you know, just like any sort of evidence, um, you've got to treat memory with, with care. Um, you know, if you have a, a glass that has a fingerprint on it, right, you get, a, you get an opportunity to test that fingerprint. Um, but once you, you know, pass that glass around to everybody else in the room, well, you've ruined that chance to, to test that uh, fingerprint because it's going to be filled up with other fingerprints. And just like, you know, similarly, you kind of get one good chance to test that memory. And if you're going to start passing it around from detective to detective to detective to, you know, social media, well, then, then it's ruined. And you can no longer have a lot of confidence in the report that someone gives. They're not lying, but their memory has now uh, been, been updated and modified. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good metaphor and a great way to think about it. And I, I, I appreciate the note that you mentioned now again and at the beginning that the person, the witness isn't lying. It's that their memory is malleable and there are all these factors that you've that's mentioned right. I mean, um, that changes their memory to fit circumstances. You know, and so, you know, I mean, uh, you know, on occasion, an eyewitness might lie, but that's not a memory issue. right? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're lying to protect themselves or implicate somebody else, but that's not a memory issue. They know they're lying. But, but too often, you know, the problem is stranger identifications uh, of, of someone that with, you know, that's trying their very best to be accurate and, and um, tell the truth. And they fully believe they are telling the truth. And there's no way to know that they're not um, by cross-examination or something like that. I mean, you can try to poke holes in their, their story, but... Um, but it's just kind of a function of the way our memory works that uh, gives us, you know, our best chance is our first chance. Um, and, and even then, you know, it's got to be a fair test because if that lineup has one person that really sticks out, you know, that's very suggestive. And you might then pick that one and feel more confident about it because it was so easy. Boy, that must be the guy. I must have it right. So you've got to have a, you know, we get that first fair test. That's your opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has given me so much to think about, and hopefully our listeners also get something to think about out of this. Thank you so much for being being in conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it. And Alex, uh, I know this is not your uh, uh, background in psychology, but you had some great questions. So I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Um, Please engage with us on Twitter, OU underscore CSC, and we look forward to uh, you joining us for our next episode.